And I still remember him saying, oh, you want to learn all our secrets, do you? And he laughed. He, he was teasing me. Every week I would go out there with an armload of plants. And he would tell me their names and teach me about them. And he told the stories. And we walked up to Flawelna. We, we went to look for the whale that was supposed to be, had been dropped on that mountain by the Thunderbirds. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Nancy Turner is a rare, venerated human being who, in service to people and the planet, has boldly followed her life's purpose for more than half a century. For nearly 20 years, I have repeatedly come across her work as a world-renowned ethnobotanist and ethnoecologist, and I have conducted countless Pacific Rim College faculty interviews of those who have studied under her and have been influenced by her. An emeritus professor at the University of Victoria, Nancy's research integrates the fields of botany and ecology with anthropology, geography, and linguistics. She is passionate about the traditional knowledge systems and traditional land and resource management systems of Indigenous peoples, particularly in Western Canada. As we discuss in this episode, Nancy has worked intimately and extensively with First Nations elders and cultural specialists in Northwestern North America, and especially along the coast of British Columbia. She shares many stories of how elders have deeply influenced her work, and we explore the complexity and symmetry of indigenous languages as they relate to plants. Nancy also shares her deep passion about indigenous people's land rights and title, and we discuss possible steps towards reconciliation. Nancy Turner has authored and co-authored numerous books, including Ancient Pathways, Ancestral Knowledge, Ethnobotany and Ecological Wisdom of Indigenous Peoples of Northwestern North America, and her forthcoming book, Plants, People, and Places, The Roles of Ethnobotany and Ethnoecology in Indigenous Peoples' Land Rights in Canada and Beyond. She has also authored over 150 book chapters and peer-reviewed papers and numerous other publications, both popular and academic. As I tell Nancy in this episode, she is a priceless asset to our planet and all who care about the preservation of indigenous knowledge, language, and culture, and the plants that we all share. Worth mentioning, she is also a beautiful and deeply respectful individual, and it is my sincere honor to share this conversation with her. So make yourself a steaming cup of Douglas fir tip tea and snuggle up to this ethnobotanical exploration. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to see you today. Thanks a lot, Todd. It's my pleasure. Now, I am extremely excited to have you on here because many reasons, but in particular, the work that I do with plants and the planet and the college setting of teaching about herbal medicines and nutrition and sustainability very much parallels with the work that you've been doing for dare I say, nearly half a century, uh, <laughs> probably over half a century. Well, yeah. 
of ethnobotany and ethnoecology. Mm-hmm. And so I thought maybe we'd begin if you could just share a bit about the work that you're currently doing, and then we'll we'll see where the conversation leads us from there. Okay, well, currently um, my work is more of a continuation of what I've been, what I started over 50 years ago, um, but um, from a broader perspective, I guess, and looking at the role of Indigenous peoples' relationships with plants in terms of their land rights and title. So I've been working on on a number with a number of First Nations and looking at the, their use of their ter- traditional territories and um, how plants play a role in that and how they can uh, the the knowledge of how they use plants can be applied to um, as as evidence for their land use and occupancy. And the fields, as I stated earlier, am I correct in that you work in the fields of ethnobotany and ethnoecology? Yes, that's right. So, can you can you define those? Yeah, ethnobotany, uh, which is in a sense the older field in terms of recon- recognition, is the study of the relationship between people and plants and people's knowledge about plants, but more than just their uses of plants. Their, um, the role of plants in culture in, in a broad way, in language, in ceremony, in belief systems, as well as their use of food, medicine, materials, and so forth. And uh, the term ethnobotany was coined in 1895 by uh, an archaeologist actually named John Harshberger. And he proposed this field of study to look at, um, there were specimens that, that were brought to the Chicago World's Fair, I believe, and uh, from First Nations, different artifacts and corn and so forth. And he was so interested in them, he, he thought um, that we should be paying more attention to these plants. And he proposed actually making the sunflower a national uh, flower for the United States. And so from, from that early beginning, he, he wrote a paper called The Purposes of Ethnobotany and talked about these different things. And from there, um, the field kind of expanded to include other areas, um, ethnozoology, and then more broadly, ethnobiology. And uh, by the the 1960s, um, the field of ethnobiology was quite broadly known, and there were papers being written in relation to the way people named and organized their uh, plant and animal worlds and so forth. The Society of Ethnobiology was founded in the early, in the late, well, around 1980. And, uh, and then the International Society of Ethnobiology. And by this time, people were realizing you can't just separate people and plants out from people and their whole environment and natural world and, and people's knowledge about the interrelationships uh, among various species and that 
um, came to be recognized as ethnoecology. And so in 1999, a book called Ethnoecology was edited by Virginia Nazaria. And, uh, and ethnoecology kind of took off as a, a field of its own uh, around that time. Nancy, where are you based right now? Are you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're at the University of Victoria for much of your work? Yes, that's right. Um, I'm actually Professor Emeritus now. I've retired from the university, but I still have my affiliation with the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria. I still am working with graduate students there, and um, yeah, we'll keep that affiliation as long as possible because um, it's nice to have an institutional um, relationship. And but right now we're living on Protection Island off Nanaimo, and oh, okay, that. In our retirement home, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, it seems to me that through your work at UVic and in your professorship there, you have been one of those rare professors, in my opinion, who actually, just by you being there on campus, students are coming to the university just for the chance to study under you. And, And I think that's it's very rare for a professor to have that sort of appeal and a claim that people are seeking you out to study with you rather than seeking out the university. And I just want to acknowledge that because you've, you've had such an impact on the local lands and people where we both live on, in the Vancouver Island area, but I know it goes so much beyond that. Thank you. You've written numerous books and I, I love writing too, and I would love to be able to take on some of these challenges that you have. Your your most recent book was a two-volume book. If I'm not mistaken, that was your most recent. Um, Actually, just... yes, it, it, it was. I see another one's coming out, which I can tell you about. Please do. Please, if, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear about it. Well, the two-volume book you talked about, Ancient Pathways, Ancestral Knowledge, uh, was a, just a total delight to work on because it, it was my effort to bring together the knowledge of so many people in across um, the region that where I focused on my work and recognizing um, as I have so much commonality in terms of the names of plants, the uses, the way medicines are used, the the belief systems and and uh, ceremonial aspects, everything. There's there's been so much uh, obvious sharing over a long time period, and that was my uh, my goal was to figure out. How did people learn this knowledge? How did they share it across generations and across geographical and cultural space and linguistic space? And and how did they adapt it to different areas? Because you can see that happening if you look. There's certain plants that have 
uh, they're different species, but they're used in very similar ways. So that's what that book was about. And, and the first thing that I did uh, before I actually started writing the book was to develop a database, which is available on the UVIC DSpace website um, of plant names in about 50 different languages and major dialects from central Alaska south to the Columbia River and east to the Rockies. And, um, and then color-coded the names, the ones that were related to each other linguistically whether through common ancestry or whether from borrowing from one language to another, which would have happened for languages that are in different language families. And you get right away the sense of the network of knowledge and exchange that was going on across this vast region, not only in the names, but in the uses of plants in the stories and so forth. So anyway, that was that book was so delightful to write because it like allowed me to think about these things and to look at examples and uh, just uh, to marvel at the networks and the, the exchange of knowledge that that have, has gone on since people arrived in this area since time immemorial, you could say. It's such a beautiful contribution, a uh, beautiful well, two-book set. I'm sure you have learned a profound amount about language and its relationship to, and, and how it is used among various cultures. Mm -hmm. I want to get to your new book, but before I forget this, are there any stories that perhaps come to the forefront when you think about what you've learned about language and how perhaps a different plant, or the same plant, is used in different cultures and how the name has had similar meanings across different cultures? It might not be the clearest question. I think I, 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 think I see what you're asking. And uh, there, there are so many examples that, um, let me think of a couple of intriguing ones that, uh, I still maybe don't understand what's going on, but um, for example, highbush cranberry, which is one of my favorite plants actually, um, by Burnham. It's, it's related to the snowball bush for those who like gardening. Um, but the Viburnum eduli, the highbush cranberry that is, grows along the coast, uh, has tremendous cultural value for its fruit. In the old days, along with Pacific crab apples, it was the the fruit was served in special ways at feasts and preserved for winter and so forth. Um, still used today in in areas where you can find it. Um, the Haida name for highbush cranberry is Playa, and the Simsian, a Somali name for highbush cranberry is Fly. So the name is obviously related across these two unrelated languages. And the, the plant grows in both areas, the Tsimsian uh, territories up and down the Skeena River and Hartley Bay and so forth. And um, it also grows in various places on Haida Gwaii. There's stories about it 
it's um, the patches are owned, have been traditionally owned by um, hereditary chiefs or matriarchs. Um, and they're the ones who look after those patches and they, they are the ones who oversee the harvesting of the berries and, uh, and then are responsible for looking after them. And first, um, they get a certain portion of the berries that people would pick. This is a tradition. And then would use those berries in a feast that they would provide for the community and, and everybody in it. Um, so the, the big question is, here's this name in two unrelated languages. Where did it come from? Was it a Haida name borrowed into Smalik? Or was it a Smalik name borrowed into Haida? Whatever it is, it must have happened a long time ago. And I, I have my suspicions that it would, because there is a Haida story about Raven bringing highbush cranberries to Haida Gwai, that um, maybe the, the name, maybe even the plant was brought originally over to Haida Gwai. But I have no way of knowing that, and it's only speculation. Another really interesting one is the skunk cabbage. Um, the name in the uh, Nutanoth and related languages, um, Maka and Dididat, um, is Tinat or Timat or Tibut. And then it has, skunk cabbage has other names uh, in the Salishan languages. But when you get over to um, the, the Rockies and just west of the Rockies and even into the Salish or Flathead people in Montana, their name for skunk cabbage is Timat. So how did that hmm. mean that transferred all that distance without having it be in between? Yeah, I, I can see with the former example of the highbush cranberry, because those those peoples are fairly closely related geographically. But with the skunk cabbage, you're right. There's such a vast distance. And I presume these are very ancient words. Oh, they would be. Um, partly, I think, I might be wrong here, but one indicator of, of, of an old name, an ancient name, is that it can't be analyzed. It, it doesn't have any meaning other than just the name of that plant. Or, uh, or else... Another indicator is if it's a borrowed name, it doesn't have a meaning. If we think of coffee, for example, which we, a word that we borrowed, I think from Arabic, if I'm not mistaken, um, it doesn't mean anything other than coffee. And then we have coffee colored and things like that. But that word is, um, doesn't have meaning in English. We can't divide it up and analyze it. Um, right, right. And that's the same with these, uh, the names that are very ancient. But for the Haida and Tsimtsian uh, example of Hlai, the Haida, when they name the bush, they say Hlai which means the bush of the high bush cranberry. And um, the Tsmelik says Khan Hlaia, which Khan is their word for bush or branch or something. So they use their own language for 
for that, but just not for the berries. Hmm. Anyway. Fascinating. Yeah, it is very fascinating. And, and that's one of the intriguing things that I guess with any field, the more you learn, the more there is to learn and the more there is to understand and, and the more fascinating it becomes. And something that you have done that is invaluable, it we can never as a culture thank you enough, is that you are preserving this knowledge. Like You are one of the few people who for the past half a century has been going out and meeting with leaders and healers and and people in the First Nations community and you're you're preserving that information and these languages. And if you weren't doing it, some of this information may be lost forever. Some of the elders that I worked with over the years have, I mean, specifically told me that uh, that's why they're sharing their knowledge with me, that uh, they, they don't want it to be lost. They're worried that it might be lost. And, um, I often talk about a mutual love of plants. That's what connects us always is the the love that we have for the natural world. And they know that I love plants and I know that they do. And and so it's a it provides a connection and also uh I guess a passion for making sure that um these plants are honored and recognized and that the information, the knowledge will be passed on to their families and their communities in the future. So mm -hmm. it's an honor, truly an honor to work with these people and to learn from them. And I always do my best to acknowledge that the, the information and the knowledge that I share in the form of publications or my talks or um, teaching it's not my knowledge. It, it was shared with me by very dedicated and, and knowledgeable teachers, people who, who have lived that and who've had those experiences. And um, they, they shared their knowledge with me so that I would pass it on in a good way. I've tried to do that all of my life. Well, I, and f it seems you've done an amazing job. And I wanted to comment on the relationships that you've managed to build and maintain with the First Nations people, because it's many people have, have tried to share some information or some of their, their knowledge and have not been able to do so. And it seems that you have developed incredibly strong, lasting ties with the First Nations communities. Not only are you bringing forward the knowledge and the wisdom, but it, it seems to me that you're a, you're such a powerful link between their their knowledge and our knowledge. And again, I just I can't commend you enough for the work that you're doing. I loved in hearing you talk about the raven bringing the high bush cranberry, because First Nations their knowledge is so much intertwined within stories and mm -hmm. lore and it's fantastic. I I live uh, at a farm called Ravenhill Harb Farm, but I'm on the foot of of a historical mountain. I I will not be able to pronounce it correctly, but something along the line of Tlaywilnuth. Yeah. Is, sorry. 
Mount Newton, right? Yeah. Yeah. Could you say that again? Well, no, I think. Okay. And and there's the legend of the Saanich people or the emerging people in a great flood that forced the people to row in their, their canoes to the very peak of the mountain because that was all that was exposed. And, and these were canoes, of course, made from the land. And using cedar bark rope, they tied their canoes to the arbutus trees and mm-hmm. waited for the waters to, to recede. So they're, they're known as the emerging people. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I just love that. I feel like in, in our culture, we don't, we don't mix the knowledge with legend and lore. And it's, it's such a beautiful way to do it. It is, and it's a profound way of teaching as well, because those those stories are kind of foundational metaphors for a whole um, body of knowledge. And they're things that children, they, they teach you about proper behavior and about respect and all of those things, as well as just being... Um, you know, entertaining for, for kids to listen. So that story and others were shared with me by Christopher Paul, who I, I talk about as my very first teacher in ethnobotany so back in 1968 when, uh, when I was working on my honors thesis. And um, his son, Philip Paul, was the chief of Tartlet at the time and um, came and spoke in our anthropology class. And I was just amazed at what he shared with us of all the things about residential schools and the things that I hadn't any idea about. And it, it just opened my eyes. But when I wanted to learn, decided I wanted to work on this project, as an honors thesis, I phoned him up, took a lot of nerve because I was quite shy, but um, I asked if there was anyone in his community who might be willing to talk to me about plants. And and I still remember him saying, oh, you want to learn all our secrets, do you? (laughs) And he laughed. He, He was teasing me. And I've learned that people love to tease. Um, Mm. And and then he said his father, Christopher Paul, has worked with some linguistics students and he might be willing to work with me. And so I went out, uh, I phoned his dad, Christopher, who lived out on uh, West Senate Road. And um, every week I would go out there with an armload of plants and he he would uh, tell me their names and teach me about them. And he told the stories, and we walked up to Tlawalna. We, we went to look for the whale that was supposed to be, had been dropped on that mountain by the Thunderbird. And, oh, I haven't heard that one. Oh, yeah. And uh, just, he grew camas in his garden. Um, he was quite an amazing man. And he actually came to our, as a guest to our wedding in 1969. So he was a dear friend uh, who we really got to know and love and his family is still dear to us his his uh, um, Philip's sons Kevin and 
uh, Chris especially, I've known well, his daughter, Anna as well. Mm-hmm. And other, so it's been, uh, I guess I've gotten to know so many really beautiful families, not just the individuals, but their, their families. Right, and, and it's kept in touch with a lot of them right to the present day. What do you think has been the, the success of your relationship building with the First Nation, Nations cultures? Well, um, I, I guess as I say, a mutual love of plants is the key to, to uh, bringing these relationships together. Um, knowing as I do how much they have, they love these plants and they love going out and, uh, and they recognize, you know, that I really appreciate what they have to teach me, that I, that I do my best to listen and be very careful and respectful in the way I record the knowledge. Um, spending time together, having fun together. You know, I still go berry picking with my buddies out at, at Seok and other places. Um, I still spend a lot of time with my Haida sister, Barb Wilson, Keel Juice, and, uh, and with Sashlama, Joan Morris, who I mentioned. Um, I have sisters all over the place, as well as my uh, biological sister who lives in Sioux. Mm-hmm. Wow. I just, I love the, I, I can feel the warmth of the relationships. And by, I, I'm presuming calling people sisters who are not your biological sisters mm-hmm. is, is part of the norm. Is mm-hmm. that, and that's, that's so different from the culture that we live in. It's, I find it's very rare for people to build those types of connections and ties to one another that they feel that sisterhood or that brotherhood with with others. It's beautiful. I don't want to forget about your new book. So before I do, can you tell us a bit about what you're working on? Okay. Well, the book that um, it, it will, should be out in August. It was to be out in May, but because of what's been going on, uh, the, the uh, McGill Queens Press, the same uh, publisher who published the Ancient Pathways, is publishing this book. It's a it's an edited book. I was the editor for it, but it's really contributions from many many different people. It's called Plants, People, and Places: The Role of Ethnobotany and Ethnoecology in First Nations Land Rights and Title. And uh, so it's really the use of ethnobotanical and ethnoecological knowledge uh, in the legal arena to uh, look at, at its role in land rights and title. And it's based on, uh, originally uh, through my fellowship in the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation, um, I, I uh, sort of led the organization of a conference or symposium in 2017 that brought together legal experts, indigenous knowledge holders and leaders, and uh, students and uh, researchers in this field. Um, and we 
had three and a half days of meetings. The last day was out at the Soap Nation, uh, hosted by Chief Gordon Planis and uh, his community. And um, there were lawyers, uh, as I say, um, people who, who study law, indigenous knowledge holders, and, and we had workshops and discussion groups and so forth. And so afterwards, um, we asked the participants to contribute chapters to the book. And, and so that's what the book is about. It has uh, chapters from about half the authors are Indigenous um, leaders, researchers, and participants, students. And um, I think it will be a really good contribution because often plants are overlooked in land rights and title cases and uh, and yet they're such an important part of every culture and language and uh and people's use and relationships with the land mm -hmm. really happy about this we also have some international contributors from sweden talking about sami use of land and uh, from New Zealand uh, and a couple from the U.S. side as well. Now, it sounds like you're doing this from mostly the botanical side, but are, are you also looking at the land, uh, land rights in the sense of the land that we have taken from the First Nations? Is that involved at all in this? Well, yes, um, because that's still an ongoing issue, really. Um, especially here in British Columbia, where a lot of uh, there, there were very few treaties that were actually developed. Um, the Douglas Treaties, 14 Douglas Treaties on Vancouver Island with the uh, people, the Strait Salish peoples, and here in Snenemoch territory and on the north in uh, Fort Rupert, there were these treaties that were developed, but they didn't really cover plant use, and uh, and as far as I understand, the people who were signing them didn't really recognize what they were signing, and uh -huh. uh, without going into a lot of detail, they're, they're not fully developed treaties that talk about, they more or less say, you, you still can use your enclosed fields and villages and you can hunt and fish as formerly an unoccupied territory. You can hunt in un unoccupied territory. Well, that, and then a lot of the land was taken uh, in, through the ENM land grant. And for the Soap Nation, for example, um, most of their traditional territory, the Couch and the Snenemoc as well, was, was taken and given away to the CPR and um, and then was sold off to as to private forest companies and so forth and so they just they 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 we need to have other ways of how can people still continue to access and use their traditional lands and resources in respectful ways even though the land has been taken yeah. from 
I think so much about this because the land that I live on, and it, I've researched some of the history, and I'm I'm living on the unceded land of the Saanich people and the Sarlip Nation, and in the history that I've been reading about my particular farm is that back in the mid uh, 1800s, a Walter Thomas purchased this land. He was the second Scottish settler to purchase land in this valley, and he purchased 200 acres of which contained part of or contained my farm. Mm-hmm. And all the history stops there. It doesn't go back any further that I found. He purchased this land from the Hudson Bay Company. How did the Hudson Bay Company end up owning the valley, the Mount Newton Valley that I live in? And and it's it's just it's absolutely shocking to me that it's kind of the history doesn't start that we know of traditionally until the settlers came in and started to buy up land that had been stolen from the people who were here before. Yeah, uh, that I believe that land would be part of the Douglas Treaty, which is how the Hudson Bay uh, Company took it over. But um, as I say, people didn't necessarily know what was happening in that in that situation. How do you think we can have reconciliation or healing without addressing that, or can we? Well, what can I, we do to make amends or to? I mean, obviously, most of us are living on land that's it's not ours. No, that's right. Um, talking to people, starting the conversation about that, recognizing that that's been the history and that it, it was not right at the time. Um, most of the First Nations people that I know recognize that um, people the newcomers are here to stay and we um we're here all here together um but there are ways like inviting people to come and harvest medicine on your property and Hmm. making it open to them or finding asking them what what can i do that would help to recognize what's happened and also to make it better. Right. And just sitting right. and talking about it, I think, is the first step. And yes. it's not necessarily a matter of giving the land back again, but providing ways, mutually agreeable ways, for people to continue to access um, what was theirs. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's beautiful advice. We are fortunate enough here to have a, a totem pole that was carved by Aub- Aubrey LaFortune, and and that was ceremoniously erected here on the farm, I believe, back in the 80s or 90s. Oh, yeah. and, and to me, it's it's an incredible reminder of of my privilege to be here and to be a steward of this land. It's it's so humbling to look at that totem pole that overlooks the ocean. And it reminds me. It reminds me of the stories that their history has been shared through. I have the three watchmen sitting on top of the totem pole, looking out mm. over the, the Saanich Inlet, and uh, a raven underneath that, and and the ravens perched on the head of a frog. Sounds just beautiful. Mm, it is. 
Well, I look forward to your new book when it does come out, and I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. You and I have a, a commonality in that we both were born in the U.S., and at some point we made our way to Canada. What is it that brought you to, to B.C. and to the coast here? Well, I was born in Berkeley, California. Um, my dad was getting his Ph.D. then in uh, in entomology he was studying forest bark beetles at the time and uh and so that's why we were in berkeley and then he got a job at the university of montana in missoula so so we moved to missoula montana when i was a baby and we lived up in the hills above the city and so my first early years my first memories are of this amazing forested uh, lands where our house was with ponderosa pine and aspen and wildflowers everywhere, shooting stars. And we had, my sister and I had names for them all. We traveled, we, we wandered around, all around our place, picking wild strawberries and choke cherries and service berries. So those are my first memories of just being out in, in nature and we moved to Victoria when I was only five and my dad got a job with the Federal Forestry Service and uh, as, as an entomologist and so I've been in Victoria I grew up in Victoria essentially went to school here and uh, we became Canadians as soon as we could legally and so I feel very much a Canadian, uh, even though I was born in the U.S. Oh, I can relate to that completely. What, other than those forest explorations as a, a young child, what or who else has inspired you in the work that you're doing? And of course, some of the elders that you've spoken of have, have taken part in that. But yeah, I'm curious, absolutely. what else? Well, um, I'll just go back to my, my dad being an entomologist, and he was very much a naturalist as well. And so he really helped kind of feed my passion. But his father, um, James W. Chapman, was an entomologist who, who got his PhD at Harvard. And uh, they lived in the Philippines, in the southern part of the Philippines. And my granddad was an ant specialist. and. So um, I've heard from the folks at Harvard that E.O. Wilson based his, aunt, his own PhD work on my grandfather's ant collections. So I have this oh, wow. long-standing history of uh, natural naturalists and interest in nature and different species. Then when I was nine, I joined the Victoria Junior Natural History Society with uh, Freeman King. Um, he was a well-known naturalist who ran this the Junior Natural History Society, part of the Victoria Natural History Society. And every Saturday we would go out, a bunch of kids with Skipper, we called him, to different places and uh, uh, explore around. So, you know, from the that time on, uh, we were going all over the place. We went to Clawelno. And he, he had actually helped uh, during the Depression. 
he oversaw the building of some of the trails and uh, other facilities there at uh, at John Dean Park. And uh, he he told stories that he had learned from some of the Saanich people. And um, so there was that, and and I just knew I really wanted to study plants even when I was in 12, 13 years old. By the time I was in high school, I had a copy of Erna Gunther's Ethnobotany of Western Washington. So I knew there was something called ethnobotany. And I believe it's in, in my high school yearbook that I want to become an ethnobotanist. So that's how long how far <laughs> it goes. And I've just been living my dream ever since. Wow. What have been some of the most memorable discoveries of of wisdom and knowledge that you've come across? Um, I, I would like to acknowledge uh, my friend and teacher, Dr. Daisy Seward-Smith, who's from the Kwakwakwak uh, Nation and lives in um, Campbell River. And uh, she and um, Kim Rakamakudasi and Plan Chief Adam Dick, Kwaksistala, Wahla, passed, uh, Adam passed away a couple years ago. But Daisy um, gave talks in my ethnobotany classes. They all did. But Daisy was um, very, art is very articulate. And um, I remember so well her talking about her own learning experience. She spent time with her two, two grandmothers, Agnes Alfred and Daisy Roberts. I actually worked with both of them in 1969 at Alert Bay and then learned from them. But Daisy was saying um, that she learned from an early age that you use these, your ears, these, your eyes, before you use this, your mouth. In other words, listen, learn, don't try to talk too much. Um, don't ask too many questions, <laughs> but just listen and observe. And I think that it sounds pretty simple and straightforward, but it's pretty profound. Mm -hmm. It takes a bit of um, control. That's one of the, the main principles of permaculture. Just watch and observe, learn oh. and listen before, before you do anything. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, I guess, would you call some of the most urgent or pressing issues in your line of work that we're facing today? Because I, as we've spoken, a lot of the knowledge that you're bringing forward perhaps wouldn't be preserved without the work that you're doing. And I'm sure you're not able to encapsulate, despite the amazing work you're doing, I'm sure there's still information out there that is at risk of being lost. What, what do you feel are some of the most urgent issues that we should consider in the ethnobotany and ethnoecology fields? Well, I think it's part of a, of a much broader um, need for society, I think. We, we were just talking about that yesterday with some folks that 
so many people are um, moving into cities, uh, living in cities, kids are wired up to devices. And uh, I think those of us who, who love being out in nature and love the plants and animals that we see um, know that you have to experience them to love them. And if you don't get a chance to be out there and to see them and watch them and to learn about them, um, you won't you won't know about them and you won't care about them. And you you will listen to um, people who who only see things as matter as mattering and getting lots of money as mattering in the world. And you, your value system can change. So. I think what is needed is that it's just for people to see just how much we need all the other species in the, that we share the planet with. We can't live without them. We can't live without the forests and, and the trees, all the other plants. They are our original solar panels. They are our sources of oxygen, and we just can't, we ignore them at our peril. But not only that, um, they bring us joy, they bring us satisfaction. Um, they're part of our, our human identity. And if we try to ignore it, we're, we're only partially living our lives, I think. If that makes any sense. It, it does. It makes perfect sense. That's been something I've been grappling with, especially during this period of lockdown. Unfortunately, we haven't been kept indoors nearly as much as people in other parts of the world. But mm -hmm. what a travesty to be locked inside, in some cases, tiny apartment buildings, breathing recycled air, not getting sunlight, not getting any sort of contact with the natural world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ugh. I don't like to think about it even, let alone live through it. If we have a, a task that, that we should work at, it's making sure that children especially and everybody has the opportunity to learn to get outside, to experience nature, to experience the natural world, and to come to love it and to cherish it and in that way we will look after it yeah. i think Jane goodall has said pretty much the same thing in her work another another amazing person absolutely yeah my son he's seven now but he's he and my daughter have pretty much grown up here on the farm and i just i will observe him walking around the farm and he's always chewing on something he walks past a, a herb and he takes off a leaf and he chews it or a wild onion or sweet sicily or he just he knows what he can eat around the farm and he just goes around taking pieces of fennel or whatever he can find and he's always chewing it reminds me of our goats that kids can learn so much we, we're always kind of afraid to teach them in case they eat the wrong thing but most kids are pretty observant and they can learn pretty quickly what you can yeah. eat you can't. Yeah. A lot of herbalists and nutrition students at, at our college, Pacific Rim College, will be listening to this as well as permaculture students. I'm wondering 
what advice you might have for a, a budding ethnobotanist or ethnoecologist who wants to carry on with some of the work that you've done? How do they begin? Oh, that's a good question. We were just talking about that, that um, I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to meet amazing elders back, you know, 40, 50 years ago, people who had actually lived in a very traditional way. And um, I remember being told when I started, you better record it all now. It'll be gone in 10 years. Well, that was over 50 years ago. And there are still amazing people, amazing teachers um, who have learned a lot and can share a lot if, if, uh, if they're asked in the right way. Um, realize the value of what they know and are willing to teach it. They're now um, coming to be university professors and uh, like Dr. Nick Claxton or Dr. Adosti, Judy Thompson and others um, who I've known, you know, as fairly young people who've grown up and, um, and gained in knowledge and wisdom and are now teachers themselves. And so I'd say um, for your students, seek out those people and see how you can, what you can do to help. That's, I think the thing is if you seek out a way to serve and to help and participate in building something, whether it's your beautiful farm or uh, an organization or um, just find out ways that you can provide support for people like that. And at the same time, you'll enrich yourselves. That's great advice. For most of the last decade, I think, I've been in touch with you every year to invite you to be our keynote speaker at our, our graduation ceremony, which you have always graciously had to decline the invitation because you have been, you were so busy. I believe most times you were traveling to Italy to take part in a slow food movement or to maybe be a keynote there. Can you talk a bit about the work that you do with food and what that means to you and perhaps the work that you've been doing with slow food movement? Yes, I, I haven't, uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm just working on a paper right now. You asked me my current projects and uh, one of the papers that I'm working on is on uh, the value of indigenous people's food systems and how important they are and how they are being revitalized um, with the recognition that the dietary shift that's gone on, they call it the nutrition transition. It's a worldwide kind of movement of people away from locally produced fresh food to more uh, distantly located packaged and refined food. As I know you are very much aware, but for indigenous peoples um, who have lived for, for countless generations eating a certain diet, a certain uh, 
type of food and then changing that dramatically to these refined foods that are high in unhealthy carbohydrates, too much sugar and fats and so forth. Um, the nutrition transition has been really bad um, and has resulted in higher levels of diabetes, for example, which was unheard of in indigenous diet when people were just eating traditional food and uh, heart disease and so forth. The slow food movement uh, has recognized the importance of food as as a part of a healthy regime. It's not just something that we um, consume, um, but something that's part of keeping us healthy if we approach it the right way. And uh, Carlo Petrini was the, the founding leader of that movement, and he, uh, he's still going strong. And the slow food movement recognizes the value, the cultural values of food, and also the value of local food and food diversity um, and, and diverse kinds of food from different areas as being important and valuable and, and not to be lost or overlooked. And so um, it was a privilege for me to be introduced to the slow food movement by Dr. Sinclair Phillip and Frederica Phillip from Sue Carver House restaurant at the time, and Anita Stewart, Dr. Anita Stewart, who was uh, at Guelph as their food ambassador. Um, and so we traveled to the first slow food meetings uh, in, in the early 2000s, I guess, or just earlier than that. That was my first trip ever to Europe. And um, it's, I've traveled many times now to Italy for various purposes and I've always been so impressed with the food culture there and how much locally produced food is valued and appreciated. And that's, that they're trying to do that with food all over the world for people to value what their own food traditions are in the locally produced food that they have. Mm -hmm. that answered your question <laughs> well it's, it's making me my mouth water for the italian cuisine that's for sure uh, yeah I, I love i've traveled in italy and yes i completely resonate with what you're saying that connection to the food and and to growing local and and creating everything by hand from scratch and the appreciation for it yeah anyway it's it's beautiful in hearing you speak about the chronic diseases that are now rampant in our First Nations communities, it, it reminded me that, as, as we've kind of discussed, they no longer have the same connection to the land or even the availability of land to, for, uh, to, to grow their own food, to forage for their own food. And so, in many cases, they're forced to eat these highly refined processed foods. Yeah. How can we remedy that? You, you've already mentioned for me, I can invite them onto the land to, to harvest and to forage. But as a society, how, what steps can we take to remedy that to help them get back, help the First Nations people get back their foods, the foods that, that they've relied upon for centuries, if not longer? Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a very difficult problem because uh, some of their traditional food is just uh, is not available anymore. It's been commercially exploited and over harvested. Things like uh, the Ulican, for example, not running up the Bellacula River anymore. Not running. Uh, there's not nearly as many Ulican. And Ulican grease is a very nutritious fat that uh, provides people with more than calories with with a, a number of the essential nutrients that they um, have relied on in the past. And the same with uh, a lot. And you said, and sorry, you said the Ulican are running. So are they just are they not abundant anymore on our coast or non-existent? They're, they still exist, but much fewer than there used to be because Ulican have been a, a bycatch in the, I believe, in the prawn fishery. And so millions of them, I guess, thousands, millions, I don't know, have mm -hmm. been uh, lost just as a bycatch. And so they're still running on the Nass River and there's there's still trickles of Ulican run in some of the rivers, but it, they used to be called the Columbia smelt. They were so thick running up the Columbia River. And uh, as far as I know, they're hardly, if there are any, there's not very many. And that's the way with some of the salmon um, and just about all of the food that people relied on in the past. Um, as, if it's been commercialized at all, um, then it, it's been over harvested and over exploited and it just hasn't been available to people. And the other, well, there are two other issues. Um, one is the, that the land has been alienated from people, so um, taken away um, by by the settlers and um, not available to them anymore. And in the old days, especially, the people who settled in those areas, they often blocked people from coming to harvest, even though they didn't use that food at all, but they didn't want them on their land. And so they just cut down their crabapple trees and threw away their baskets and digging sticks in some cases. and. Um, and just uh, that's when people kind of got fed up and, and stopped using their, their food. Um, and then the other thing is the pollution. Oh, that yes. People around, Vic well, just take Victoria. Um, the best clam beach in all of Vancouver Island, from what I've heard from a couple of people, Clan Chief Adam Dick, but also Chief Charlie Jones, Pisco from Dididat was where the Empress Hotel is today hmm. and in James Bay. And, yep. uh, and of course, that clam beach is gone. And the clam beaches all the way around the peninsula are pretty much polluted and have been for years with Victoria's sewage. So it's impossible to harvest around that area anymore and people just don't have access to clams. My friends from the different First Nations, they really long to have 
clams, but they have to buy them from somewhere else. They can't go and dig their own clams. Mm. And what about the, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just all all of the seafood around the settled areas of our country is polluted now. Yeah, I wanted to speak of our watersheds because even here where I am in, in the Mount Newton Valley, the, I think the provincial government recently took over about 260 acres of land through which a small creek called Hagen Creek runs through. And it was a transitional organic farm. I think it was only a year or two away from getting certified. And they took it over and in their first year they sprayed glyphosate on it. <laughs> on hundreds well at least probably a hundred acres from what i could tell and that just went straight into hagen creek which literally is 50 meters away from the ocean and the first nations ocean front and that caused quite a stir here on the peninsula and i, I can only imagine what's going on all across the coast yeah. and and these fertilizers that are being dumped downstream and it's yeah it's, oh, it's detrimental. Um, yeah. John Elliott, who you would know from Sartlet and mm. and the late Earl Claxton Sr., yeah. uh, they wrote a book on reef net fishing, and they've often talked about um, Maber's Swamp, which is a wetland nearby you that used to be the source of much of the traditional food and then it was drained by the settlers. And hmm. uh, they said old Mrs. Elliot, whenever they went by that, she used to cry. Oh, wow. They saw it not just as a destruction of that wetland, but as a destruction of a whole way of life that, that she felt would never come back. Yeah. That must be what we overlook here because it's in the, the bottom of the valley. It gets very wet during the winter times, but... I can, of course, all the, most of the trees have been removed and the habitat is now mostly just barren farmland. It's, it's beautiful from afar, but I can only imagine what beauty and richness it must have once held. Yeah, I think the diversity of uh, species is so important and, and this trend towards bigger and bigger and bigger, more monoculture areas and getting rid of the little hedgerows and the little thickets around the edges of the fields um, has been really detrimental for so much wildlife. And we know about the loss of the bees and the pollinators. And and then we have climate change, which is another huge impact. And, And about, I think all we can do is to just work hard each in our own areas to try and bring back some of the diversity. Um, I'm working here on Protection Island. There's a little wetland next to our community garden that we're restoring and bringing back some of the native species. And and we're also going to recreate a little uh, Gary Oak meadow next to it with the native plants. And with those come the native pollinators and the birds that come uh, to feed on the insects. And um, that's kind of how you restore it by bringing back the diversity of areas and keeping all of the different habitats going and not just converting them into one big uh, broad 
habitat. I've often said we're homogenizing the world. You know, you can look at a field, a, a photo of a field in Scotland, in China, in British Columbia, and you wouldn't be able to tell where it was, where, where, where the photo was taken, because it's identical in each place. And, and we're bringing species and mixing them up and so forth. And I think we have to all work at keeping that diversity alive. Yes, we do. And you, what a neighbor you must make, what richness you must bring to any community you're in. I, I feel honored that you, to, to be connected to the same lands that you are and, and very much uplifted to know there are people like you who are doing the work that you're doing. It's, it, it's so important. And I hope more people are inspired by what you're doing and, and continue with that work. I thank you so much for taking the time out of your morning, Nancy, to, to talk with me today. It's been such an honor and a privilege. Well, thank you, Todd. I've enjoyed talking with you. If anyone does want to connect more with the work that you're doing or with you, I'm, is there anywhere where they can find out more about you and, and your works? Of course, your books are available. The books would be the main, the main okay. thing. It's a few things, I guess I have some outdated bios out there. <laughs> I haven't looked. <laughs> when you've been doing it for 50 years, that's excusable. <laughs> and where's the best place for people to get your books, Nancy? Um, I guess the Royal BC Museum uh, and the University of Victoria bookstores would have, okay. would have them, mostly. Yeah. You could track them down from the publishers. There's a number that are published through the museum okay. and, uh, and uh, Harbor Publishing or Douglas and McIntyre. Um, I just got a note that um, the, the Earth's Blanket hard copies are available at a discount price through the University of Washington Press. Okay. <laughs> interested. Well, I'll put all of those books in the show notes and I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to Maybe one of your bios at the University of Victoria. Is that probably one of the more recent ones? It might be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know. <laughs> well, you deserve to uh, to live in, in your quietness on Protection Island. And thank you so much again for all the work that you are doing and, and have done over the many, many decades and all the people you've influenced and inspired, thank really, you. including myself. So. Thank you. I appreciate that. Great. Well, it's been such a pleasure, Nancy. Thank you so much. Okay, you bet. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with distinguished ethnobotanist and ethnoecologist Nancy Turner. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might be interested in the forthcoming online course, Indigenous Land Protocol and Medicinal Harvesting, taught by Aaron Gilpin at Pacific Rim College Online. For more extensive learning, check out our home herbalist and community herbalist programs, arguably the finest online herbal programs anywhere, available at pacificrimcollege.online. You can also explore our various on-site programs in herbal medicine, nutrition, and permaculture design. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn about all our education opportunities. 
Please share this podcast with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, listen, observe, and respect in all that you do.